Well, good evening, everybody. Lovely to see you all. Welcome to our evening service. Um, this evening, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, title of the series, in case you weren't aware of that by now, it's uh, Living for Jesus in Light of His Return. Given the fact that we know that Jesus is going to be coming back to gather his people to be with him, how does that affect the way we live our lives today as his followers? Uh, we're going to be looking at two particular aspects of daily living for Jesus this evening. Uh, one is in the area of sexuality, the other one is the area of work. With regards to sexuality, uh, we have a morning training session on November the 4th uh, here at LCBC when Andy Robinson of the Christian organization Living Out is going to be coming and leading uh, three seminars on Bible and sexuality, on church and sexuality, and culture and sexuality. I think it's important that we all understand what the Bible teaches um, about this area, that we do have a, a better story, and how we communicate that story and engage with a culture, a society that has a very different view. With regards to work, um, we're going to be hearing later this evening from Martin Walker and uh, John Lilly, who helpfully shared some of their um, experience in the workplace uh, at the men's breakfast yesterday. Uh, next Sunday evening, we're going to be having a, a seminar and uh, it's on the subject of assisted suicide, another very topical issue today. And then we'll pick up the, the series in 1 Thessalonians the week after that, when we'll be looking at the, uh, the Christian teaching on death. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4 has some very encouraging words for Christians who are grieving the loss of loved ones. In verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, we read this. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Those are very encouraging words in the light of the sad news this week of the death of Jacqueline Gibson, a dear sister in Christ, a friend of many here, in the church, where she was a committed member for over 20 years, someone with a real love for the Lord, love for his people, who is faithful in service, and had a heart for the lost. So let's use those words from 1 Thessalonians as we start our service, as we pray for our husband Alan and the family now, and as we commit this time to the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for the life of Jacqueline and all that she meant to us. We thank you for those who came to faith through her witness or who were built up in their faith through her words of encouragement, through praying, reading the Bible with her. We thank you that you adopted her as your child and that you've now called her home to be with you. We pray for Alan and their children. Esther, Ruth, and Simon, and the rest of the family in their grief, and for ourselves as we grieve her loss. And we thank you that we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope, but we rejoice that Jesus died and rose again to make us right with you. And we look forward to that day when he comes again to take us all to be with you for eternity. Until that day, we pray that you would 
Equip us and empower us to live lives that please you. So we pray this evening that we would please you with our worship, that we would please you with the attitude of our hearts as we seek to grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our reading this evening can be found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to read from verse 1 to 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and in that And that, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is God's word. Thank you, Mark. Um, Let's uh, pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you that we have in our hands your precious word. Thank you for these instructions we have in front of us. Thank you that they come by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that they are good for us. Lord, help us to understand them. Help us to understand more of you as we read them and study them together. And help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to live lives that are pleasing to you and that reflect your holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the key doctrines of the Protestant Church that resulted from the Reformation was that we are saved 
by grace alone, through faith alone. It was a response uh, to what was perceived as the teaching of the Catholic Church of salvation by works. As an evangelical church, today we will point clearly to such verses as Ephesians 2 that says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. One of the unfortunate consequences of a focus on that biblical truth is that the gospel has been reduced by some to a ticket to heaven. God has done the work for us through Jesus, and we just need to believe in him, and we will have eternal life. And in our desire to emphasize that gospel message of salvation by grace, the question we often don't spend enough time on is, what does it mean to live as a Christian in this world before we get to heaven? In this church, we have identified gospel living as one of our mission statements in order to achieve our vision of uh, seeing lives changed by Christ. We want, as it says in our statement, to equip each other to love Christ wholeheartedly and to live out the gospel in all of life. And this letter to the Thessalonians is a great letter for helping us to understand how we can do that. The title of the series, as I said earlier, has been Living for, for Jesus in the Light of His Return. Up to now in the letter, Paul has uh, looked back to what has happened, how the gospel message came to Thessalonica with power, how the gospel ministry that he and his companions lived out was full of great compassion and encouragement. And at the end of chapter 3, as um, we saw last week, Paul finished with a prayer for the growth of the Thessalonians in Christian maturity. But now as we move into chapter 4, there is a a bit of a mood shift as we turn to instruction and what that means in everyday life. And the first thing we see is that living a gospel life means pleasing God. Verse 1 says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Back in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul had already said, we're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. He is the one we need to please. I wonder how often there are actions driven by a desire to, to please people and to be popular, rather than please the only one who really matters, God himself. How often do we not do what we should do out of a fear for what others might think? I'm not talking here about pleasing God to to earn his salvation, to earn our salvation, but we're pleasing God in order to show our gratitude for the fact that we have been saved. Thank you for saving me, as we sang earlier on. He is our Heavenly Father. The great thing about this letter is that Paul doesn't need to, to correct their behavior, but he's encouraging them to keep on doing what they are already doing. We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Later on, look down at verse 9, he says, You yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, and in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Keep on doing what you're doing. However hard it may be, don't give up. And the way to avoid that temptation 
to give up is to do more of what you are already doing. As Paul says to them twice in verse 1 here, and in verse 10, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. There's no bar that you have to achieve to demonstrate that your faith is genuine. The mere fact that you're trying to live a life pleasing to God demonstrates that it is genuine, that it is the desire of your heart to please him. So be encouraged, he's saying. Don't beat yourselves up. But on the other hand, it's also a warning, isn't it? Don't be complacent. Don't ever think that you have grown as much as you can as a Christian. Don't ever think you've got it sussed. Don't ever think you know all there is to know. How do we guard against that? Well, obvious things. Don't ever give up praying. We stop praying. We neglect our praying when we think we can do things in our own strength. We don't need God's help. Don't ever give up learning. We stop reading the Bible. We stop reading Christian books when we become satisfied with how much we we think we know. We can never know God enough. Don't ever give up growing in love. We will never be able to love perfectly in this life. So keep on loving more and more, Paul is saying to them. So if leading a gospel life means pleasing God, then what does that look like in practice? Well, there are three areas of Christian living that Paul focuses on this in this letter, which he feels the Thessalonians need to be reminded of. They concern the areas of sex, work, and death, which are some of the key areas of concern to, to people today, whether they are a Christian or not. How do we live out the gospel in each of these three different areas? We're going to look at two of those this evening, and then the third one in a couple of weeks' time. But let's start with that first one. Living a gospel life means being sexually pure. Living in a sexually promiscuous society, as we do, where pretty much anything goes, it would be easy to assume that things could not have been as bad in those days. But in actual fact, they were probably a lot worse. Partly because some of the Greek and Roman gods who were worshipped were gods associated with sex and beauty and fertility. Partly because women had a very low social status. Slavery was widespread. It was common for men to have mistresses, concubines, and use the services of prostitutes. The role of the wife was to manage the household and bring out the children. Paul tells the New Thessalonian believers that they are now different. And he does that by saying in verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And in verse 7, he, he carries on, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. In the same way that God is holy, set apart from his creation, Christians should be different from those around them. Unlike the pagans, we're told, who do not know God, it says here, Christians do know God. So what does that mean for for sex? Well, Paul is very clear, it says here, you should avoid sexual immorality. There's a big contrast he makes between sex, which in verse 4 is holy and honorable, in which self-control is exercised, and verse 5, sex which is driven by passionate lust, and which may lead to taking advantage of a brother or sister. What is he getting at here? Well, 
Lust is allowing your physical desire to drive your actions. It's about pleasing yourself. It doesn't therefore respect other people. Implication of that is uh, you sleep with whomever you want to satisfy your physical urges. It's often portrayed as, as liberating. But it fails to recognize that sex is more than just a physical act. It's a deeply intimate act, which involves emotions and the whole person. For Paul to say control your own body is not to say you, you cannot have sex, but enjoy it within its right context, a loving, committed relationship within marriage. To find that spelt out, uh, if you turn to briefly to 1 Corinthians 7, and here... Paul writes this in verse, in verse 2. Since uh, sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. What we see here is that heterosexual marriage is the God-given context for sex. And within that context, it's not just for one's own pleasure, it's a giving of one's body to the other for his or her pleasure. If the whole relationship is healthy... If there is deep understanding and intimacy between a husband and a wife, a desire to serve the other, then sex is a physical expression of that love and demonstrates an unselfish respect and honour for the other. In Paul's words, he says, control your body in a way that is holy and honourable. And therefore means to ensure sex is reserved for marriage, but it also means guard yourself against any unhelpful influences. Avoid pornography. Avoid watching films with gratuitous sex scenes. And he goes on, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. That may be within marriage, make sure sex is not abused. Or it may also refer to having sex with someone outside of marriage, adultery. When a Christian commits adultery, it has wide-ranging ramifications for many other people the innocent husband or wife on both sides, children, extended families. If it happens in a church, it can be devastating. And ultimately, the glory of God himself is affected as those who call themselves Christians bring his name into dishonor. Which is why Paul goes on to say here, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. But living a gospel life means being sexually pure. Now, you may be thinking, well, it's okay for you to say that. You, you're married. But what about those who are single? How do you control your body in a way that is holy and honorable in that way? Well, I agree it is harder, but simply because it's harder doesn't mean that these instructions don't apply. In fact, they're even more important because the temptation will be greater. John Stott, who was someone who remained single for the whole of his life and led a very fulfilling life, wrote this. We too must accept this apostolic teaching, however hard it may seem, as God's good purpose for us and for society. 
We should not become a bundle of frustrations and inhibitions if we embrace God's standard, but only if we rebel against it. Christ's yoke is easy, provided that we submit to it. He goes on to make this positive suggestion. He says, it is possible for human sexual energy to be redirected both into affectionate relationships with friends of both sexes and into the loving service of others. Multitudes of Christian singles, both men and women, can testify to this. Alongside a natural loneliness accompanied sometimes by acute pain, we can find joyful self-fulfillment in the self-giving service of God and other people. Whatever age and stage we are at in life, we need to be better equipped to be able to respond to where our society is in regard to sex and be able, in the words of the book by Glenn Harrison, to show that as Christians we have a better story. We need to be telling that story to our children, to our grandchildren. So can I therefore encourage you all to come to the uh, seminar I mentioned uh, earlier um, on uh, November the 4th when Andy Robinson will be talking about these issues, including the whole issue of same-sex attraction. Let's move on to the other issue Paul deals with, which is that of work. Living a gospel life means working hard. It's a key theme in Paul's letters to the church in Thessalonica. If you look over the page in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul first praises those who work hard. He says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Then he also gives a warning in verse 14. He says, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Back in chapter 4, the context of Paul's exhortation to believers to work is that of loving one another. We show love in the way we work. How do we do that? Well, look at what he says to them in verse 11. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the phrase a quiet life. It's usually in the context of someone saying, well, I've had enough of the the busyness, the stress of uh, life and responsibility. I just want to lead a quiet life. I don't think that's what he's getting at here. It's linked more to the next phrase, you should mind your own business and work with your hands. In other words, instead of being those who who moan about or criticize others for what they are doing, focus on what you are responsible for and do that well. The workplace is somewhere where Christians have an excellent opportunity to show the different values they have from the world. How do we do that? Well, first, by remembering who we're working for. We're not working for human bosses. We're not working for ourselves. We're not working to try and achieve a level of wealth or status or a sense of identity. We're working for the Lord. As it says in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. The Bible teaches us that work is a gift from God. 
In Genesis 1, we're told that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. God created people. And we're told in chapter 2 that before the fall, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. What work is about is creating and maintaining. God's work was to create something out of nothing. Our work as humans is to take what God has made and shape it and use it for good purposes. That good purpose may simply be the delight we can experience in creating something. A work of art, crafts, DIY, even music or sport are types of work in the broader sense of the word that bring us and bring others delight. That good purpose may also be making something or or doing something that is useful. We have engineers who design, we'll hear about from one of those later, things that that make things that are are useful for us in everyday life. They design places to live, means of transport, means of communication. We have farmers who make the earth productive so we have plenty to eat. The key thing about work is being productive with our time. So work doesn't stop when we retire and we're no longer in paid employment. If we're continuing to use the gifts that God has given us so that others may benefit, then we are working, which means God is glorified and we will experience a sense of joy and purpose. I think it's important here to remember that not all work will be satisfying or fulfilling. Even if you're doing your dream job, there will be parts of it that are frustrating and tiring and stressful because we live in a fallen world. Before the fall, people lived in a garden where they had all the food they needed on trees that God had provided. All they had to do was pick and eat and enjoy. Work was not about survival then. They were free to use their time in creative pursuits without worrying about food and clothing. After the fall, God made work hard and life hard to remind people that things are not right while there is sin in the world. People chose to be self-reliant rather than rely on God. They rejected his provision. And so God subjected them to the very thing they chose, self-reliance. And from now on, he says, in order to eat, you will need to toil and sweat. So we have to work to provide for our needs, which is why Paul here is warning the idol. If you're not providing for your needs, you're not pulling your weight. You're requiring someone else to work to be able to provide for you. Now, it doesn't appear here to be those who are unable to find work, who Paul is criticizing, but those who have a poor attitude to work, the the lazy, the idle, those who are happy for others to do the work so they don't need to. That is not a loving attitude, he's saying. But let's come back to this opportunity to witness to others by the way we work, because one of the reasons why Paul calls the Thessalonians to work in verse 12 is so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. In other words, those who are not believers will will respect the hard work of believers, and although it's not said here explicitly, God will be glorified. They'll see something different about you. So how should our attitude to work as Christians be different from that of others? Well, we looked at some of these things yesterday in our men's breakfast, but here's a a few to be thinking on. 
First of all, act with honesty and humility. In our conversations and our presentations, we don't need to impress others. We don't need to make ourselves appear better than we really are. We don't need to hide or gloss over our mistakes in the workplace. We're working for the Lord. He knows what we're like. We can't kid him. If he wants us to be promoted and progress in our career, he will make that happen. Trust in him. Secondly, show respect to your colleagues, from those doing the most menial of tasks to those at the highest level. Speak well of them. Don't get involved in gossip about them. Show an interest in their personal lives so that when they are going through tough times, as everybody will at some stage, they may feel able to come to you and open up to you and seek your help and your wisdom. Thirdly, be conscientious. Do your job well. Don't slack, don't be lazy, but at the same time, don't sell out your soul for your career. Don't sacrifice your family or your friends or your church on the altar of work. Fourthly, show how the peace of God rules in your heart, particularly in times of stress and anxiety and uncertainty in the workplace, where everybody is uptight and anxious. Show that the Lord is in control of your life, your hope is in him, not in your work. And finally, proclaim the gospel. In some workplaces, this will be harder than others. But the more you show different values in the way you work, the more opportunities you will have to tell people about the reason for the hope that you have. We're going to spend a bit of time in a minute praying for one another, for the different activities that we are involved in, during the week, as I said, it's not just about paid employment. It's whatever you will be doing this week. Um, for some, that will be paid employment. For others, it will be voluntary work. For others, it will be life in the home or in the community. Before we do that, though, I'd like to um, invite Martin and John to, to come up. Um, can I ask them a couple of questions about their work situations, which hopefully will be an encouragement for us. Um, they shared yesterday, as I said, the men's breakfast. Um, but... Um, Good to hear some of that again for the benefit of those who weren't there, particularly the women who obviously weren't there. Um, so John's on his way down. Um, he's, on, he's on sound and he has turned this on, so that's good. <laughs> and I hope this one's working too. I oh, thought I'd give oh, Martin his own microphone so that I wouldn't have to share. <laughs> I thought one of the advantages of being on the sound desk, I could mic myself up straight away. <laughs> I won't get you to give a long explanation of what you do exactly like we heard yesterday. It was pretty good. Um, I'll, I'll briefly summarise it for everybody. Um, Martin is uh, an engineer and John is a lawyer. Martin works for Jaguar Land Rover and uh, John works for... Blazer Mills Law. Blazer Mills Law. Quick, High Wickham. Quick plug there. And they have offices in different places. No. Um, Martin, I'm going to ask you the same question, both of you. Two questions. First of all, in terms of living the life of a Christian in the workplace... What have been some of the encouragements for each of you? And what have been some of the challenges? So encouragements, living the life of a Christian in the workplace where you've seen God at work through you and been able to influence others. Um, and then what is hard in your particular workplace about being a Christian? Okay. start, Martin. So one big encouragement, in the last couple of years, Jaguar Land Rover has really put a lot of emphasis onto diversity, equity and inclusion of which Christians at Jaguar Land Rover is one of the networks. So I get to wear 
my lanyard with a 30-year-old picture of me, which you can laugh at later, but with Christians at Jaguar Land Rover around the top there. So I've got an immediate, if somebody wants to ask me a question, they know that I'm associated with this particular uh, network within Jaguar Land Rover. Equally within that, uh, just some of the things that Neil was just literally talking about there in terms of how we behave, the company has a code by which we behave, and that's summed up in five key words which they break down into how you, uh, how your, not just what you do at work, but how you do it is reflected in those things. Customer love, you can imagine as engineering company, wanting to make sure our customers feel that we love them. It's, it's unusual, but it's there. <laughs> Unity, integrity, growth, impact. So I've already got those strong sort of themes at work. Do you know what they call this code? The creator's code. What am I going to do with that? <laughs> they put a comma at the end of S to say creator's plural because as engineers we are creators creating things at work. I just have to move that S and say this is how I follow our creator's code by following our creator's code. And I'm straight in there with being able to talk to them about these things. So I might not necessarily appear too different from others if they're reflecting those sorts of things, but I've got a way of actually saying, isn't it interesting how the company has picked up on these themes as being important in the way in which we work, not just doing what we're doing, but how we do it? Uh, because hmm, I wonder if they're maybe reflecting a, a good idea somebody a bit bigger than Jaguar Land Rover had a while ago. Brilliant. So I went on for much longer than Neil wanted then. No, 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 that's great. That's great. That's a great encouragement. And just, yeah. I'll give you a chance to say even more because you've been running an alpha course, haven't you, in the workplace um, and the, the company's actually encouraged you to do that. Yes. Which yeah. is quite incredible, isn't it? So, so this is um, the other thing and my Friday at 7, Friday at 7? Yeah, Friday at 7 in the mornings, prayer group have been really encouraging me with this. Uh, we started last Wednesday. Uh, we've got a few people coming along now. It's early days yet. But the company is saying, yes, you're part of this network. What do we want at the company? We want curious people. Engineers naturally curious, but the company wants to encourage that in their leadership. They want to encourage that. All the different diversity groups, whatever they might be, we want you to be curious about what they're doing. So if they want to tell you about what they're doing, we want you to be curious and go along to them. So we're going to give them the opportunity to invite you to go along to them. And if that means an hour in your work week, once a week, is going along to an alpha course, that's okay with us. So really, you know, we're sit there we are as Christians at Jaguar Land Rover thinking, I think God is blessing us here. Yeah. I'm feeling the responsibility. Are you? Yeah. Should we do something about this? So this is what we've been trying to. So that's really encouraging for us. Very early days yet. But again, we've got the opportunity to legitimately at work talk about, the, you know, take, do the alpha course at work and just see how that goes. So we've got a pilot course literally just started now and we will see how that goes It's you know, and you know, seek to continue living that out. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Martin. John, over to you, an encouragement from, from work? Yeah. Um, got your mic an encouragement has been, um, so generally, I would say that I have been hugely encouraged by the way in which 
So I'm going to mix the, the encouragement and the challenge That's in one, in one answer. Fine. Is that yeah, a good yeah. way to do it? So in terms of being able to, being in a position of owning and managing a large business with, we've got 140 people, we've got 21 partners, and I'm in a group of four of us who, who own and manage the business. So that's a, a big responsibility, but it's a big opportunity as well to be able to shape the culture of the business. And it's, it's been hugely humbling being able to be part of that in setting the tone for the business. And the way in which we have uh, dealt with challenges that have come our way, of which we have had some significant ones in the last two to three years, I've shared um, openly in this, in this building from time to time things that have gone on. But what has been amazing is that when the challenges have come in our business, I have had incredible and increased opportunities to speak openly about my trust in God and about how he's in control and that he's watching over our business and that he's taking care of us among the challenges. And that's been incredible. I've had incredible uh, encouragement uh, recently in the before literally a few months before um, we hit a very, very significant challenge that lasted pretty much for two years. Um, another partner joined us from another firm, and within a few weeks I realised that he was a Christian, and that was an immense encouragement because he's been so supportive to me personally, so that was brilliant. There, there are literally probably a handful of Christians in, in the business, but he was a very significant provision from God. I think that God sent him to me to enable me to... to ride this passage through and I've just been able to declare to my to my fellow partners also to anyone uh, who is in need at, at the time what you said in your in your sermon Neil was very chimed with me towards the end about being alert if you if you are um, praying for God to be watching over you in your work then on a daily basis then um, he will make you attentive and he will make you sensitive to the needs around you and people will will come to you and will God will will bring them to you and um, I've had many opportunities to be able to say to people uh, in, in, in the business although I'm in a position of authority and I'm not, I don't feel it's the right thing to be um, openly um, evangelising people in my business because I think that that's a difficult dynamic but when, when the opportunity has arisen I've had amazing opportunities to say to, to people that, that I will be praying for them about that or if I've had a difficult conversation, if I've had to do a difficult thing, if I've had to terminate someone's employment, then to do it in a manner in which I can bring, bring my faith to, to bear and to um, speak about what I believe. And, and uh, there have been opportunities and uh, many more as a result of a significant challenge as well. So, yeah, that's a, a small smattering. That's of what's brilliant, going on. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much, John. Um, probably leave it there unless there's any challenges you want to mention, Martin or... Um... I could keep going on forever. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's turn to prayer then. Um, maybe in twos or threes or fours, um, however you want to do it, or if you want to just stay on your own and pray, that's fine as well. Um, just share with one another, um, think about the week ahead. What are some of the challenges facing you in this week in terms of how you're going to use your time um, productively and pray for one another? And then we'll finish with some worship at the end of that. I hope you found uh, this evening helpful and I um, hope it's given you some fuel for your prayers in the week ahead. And do f- don't forget those people that um, people have shared and uh, maybe next, next week ask how those people are doing, how were those situations that you prayed for, how did God help and encourage you in those. Let me close with um, some verses from the end of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. 
May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen.